Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for March 14th. My name is Shelby Herbert. I'm reporting for KFSK. Yesterday morning, President Joe Biden approved of the Willow Oil Drilling Project. Josiah, Josiah Putkatuk, who rev- represents District 40, was the prime sponsor of a resolution in the legislature in support of the development in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. The Willow Project would allow development of three oil pads and more than 200 wells to be constructed in the North Slope. Desiree Hagen sat down with Putkatuk to talk about the future of the project. There's been a lot of chatter from the federal delegation, especially Senator Sullivan, that ignoring the Willow Project ignores the voices of Alaska Native peoples. How would you factor in the voices of villages like Nuiqsut, a Inupiaq community in your district, which is vehemently opposed to the project? Yeah, I mean, it, it does play a factor, and I think it speaks to kind of the uh, the response that industry has to have when it creates its actions plan, making sure that the, the voices are heard and are incorporated into that action plan for any mitigation measures. And, you know, we're, we're never going to get 100% consensus from our people on, on anything, right, whether it's you know, erosion control project or whether it's an oil and gas project. So it's important. The idea that, that people don't want those types of things to happen is there, and I respect those opinions, and I think it's important that we make sure their voices are heard too. So you come from an Inupiaq family that has traditionally hunted whales and other subsistence food sources. There are two caribou migrations that pass through this region, Caribou are keystone species. Are you concerned about how this project might affect caribou or other subsistence food sources? Sure. I think um, having spent some time driving through the the whale fields, hauling stuff home from Fairbanks and Anchorage, it's uh, and and having family members that work in the uh, in the industry out there in Prudhoe, what kind of impediment that a road or a pad might cause, I I think is uh, a little overthought. There's action plans in place for that if caribou are crossing the road, that they have the right of way to do that. And that's exactly what the process allows for right now is to making sure that there's mitigation for those type of concerns. There's a few buddies that I talk to frequently that enjoy jumping in their truck and driving to the nearest caribou and, and, shooting them and dragging them right to their truck and bringing them home. I think that's an amazing opportunity that I, for one, in the future and, and talk with buddies home at home in Barrow, look forward to at some point. In regards to resource development and the Willow Project, historically Alaska has operated on boom and bust cycles. If the Willow Project is developed, is there anything in place to ensure that the money stays in the region or is invested in the long term? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you look at the North Slope Borough Property Tax Assessment, that's one way in which we make sure and, and get a portion of of the money and the value that, that comes with that development. And it's spent on things in, a, in the borough that otherwise may be unmet, where, where we look at water and sewer infrastructure, look at power generation, 
you look at uh, road maintenance, you look at road construction, uh, you look at trash services, all of which the North Slope Borough plays a role in in every community, all of that. There's tax revenue generated from the different non-restricted lots in the different communities, but a majority of it comes from the value that's put into place on the North Slope oil fields. The other aspect of it that's actually a little new to and and really new specific to the NPRA production is the grant mitigation fund, uh, which is going into the weeds of it is the state's royalty share is allocated directly to the impacted communities on the North Slope, uh, and that's congressional authority that says that that needs to happen. And there's a Department of Revenue fiscal analysis that says over the course of the 30 years that Willow's supposed to operate, there's somewhere to the tune of $3.5 billion made available to the communities on the North Slope, and that's both the tribes, cities, and the borough that are able to apply for those things. And they can be used for anything from city manager salaries in communities that don't have an economic base for their city government to tap into so that they can put on uh, anywhere from community events to basketball camps, you, you name it. There are other projects that I've seen funded through the NPRA Grant Mitigation Fund as far as power generation projects, water treatment facilities, so that we can afford to have our flush toilets uh, and, and piped in water. There's a myriad of ways in which boom and bust with, with the oil economy is kind of secured locally to where we, we just have the funding for a basic level of lifestyle. And so that, that's what I see the value as. As far as the state side of things, they see fiscal gain through it for just the throughput on the pipeline, production tax, among other ways. The benefit is there, I think. And then it's just going to be up to us as the community and as the legislature and the governor to make sure that, you know, the, the money spent wisely that comes from that, that gets us away from kind of the bust scenario. That was Desiree Hagen talking to Representative Josiah Patkutuk about his support of the Willow Project. The Petersburg Marine Mammal Center has resurrected its monthly seminar program after a two-year hiatus due to the pandemic. In the last week of February, the center invited Petersburg-based wildlife biologist Toby Backus to speak about his work with the U.S. Forest Service Fire Militia. When the number or size of wildfires exceeds a local fire agency's ability to fight them, they can call in militia support. That support can include help from employees like Bacchus, who aren't full-time firefighters, but who are trained to fight wildland fires when needed. Bacchus talked about the science of fighting wildfires and what it's like to be on the front lines. This is more from his presentation. For over 20 years, Toby Bacchus has helped fight fires across eight western states. When the order comes in from the fire line, he's called away from his home in Petersburg for two to three weeks at a time. He says it can be intense work, but safety is their top priority. Ensuring public and firefighter safety is always the number one priority. You know, like even over houses, structures, 
And a big component of safety is maintaining your situational awareness. The roar you're about to hear is from a video Bacchus took of a wildfire. So if something like this is happening, you don't want to be all of a sudden like, man, I wonder where that crew is that I'm supposed to be supervising. Or like, hey, did we tell that crew to get out of that road? You know, you just need to really be heads up and aware like pretty much all the time. He usually serves as a heavy equipment boss, directing bulldozers on the fire line. Bulldozer lines help prevent wildfires from spreading further out. They're built by heavy equipment operators who cut up the ground and remove flammable plant material down to the bare soil. You might have heard of like the fire triangle, which is um, fuel, oxygen, and heat. That's how you can make fire. You have to have those three things. When we talk about wildland firefighting, it includes topography and weather. And fuel is a huge component to it. So if you have really light fuels, fires can burn quick, but not super intensively, like in grass. They're kind of like something to be aware of because they can move through grass super fast. Bacchus has also been summoned to help treat areas for wildfires that haven't happened yet. That's by starting smaller, more manageable fires in a practice called prescribed burning. A fire used to be part of the ecology of forests across the western United States, and it remains an important land management tool. The western forests used to burn naturally. It was part of their natural ecology. That was either burning naturally um, from lightning strikes or being uh, burned by native communities. So when European settlement arrived in the west, they started suppressing fires. Fires were seen as bad. In 1935, the Forest Service established this policy called the 10 a.m. policy, which strove to uh, put any fire out by 10 a.m. the next day after the day it was spotted. So what that does when you take fire out of the ecosystem, the trees that are more shade tolerant have a competitive advantage over the ones that aren't. Some trees species need fire for their seeds to germinate. Bacchus says the work isn't all chaos and excitement 24-7. He also described what downtime was like around the fire camp. So pre-COVID, they used to have a food caterer, you know, that would set up tables and everything. This doesn't happen anymore, which is actually kind of good. And I don't know if they'll ever go back to it because the amount of what we call camp crud, where somebody has just some random cold. When you are all touching the same spoons and stuff, it just spreads like wildfire. But the element of danger remains. Bacchus recalls his closest calls and explains how wildland firefighters identify escape routes from the rapidly approaching flames. Um, but communications, like when things are burning and, and there's a lot of stuff going on, it's like constant. It's always good to have multiple escape routes out of some place. But the best escape route is usually grab, jump in a vehicle and get out of there. You don't have to use a fire shelter, which is that thing on the table over there. Um, you should never have to pull that out. And um, Bacchus indicates a fire shelter set out on the table in front of him. It resembles a large sleeping bag made of aluminum foil. Wildland firefighters use fire shelters as a sort of last resort when they become trapped by wildfires. The shelters don't stand up well to direct flames or longer periods of heat exposure and can't even guarantee the survival of the user. This talk was organized by the Petersburg Marine Mammal Center and the Alaska Sea Grant. It was hosted by the Petersburg Public Library. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. 
An outdoor treasure hunt is coming to the Kenai Mountains Turnagain Arm Heritage Area this summer in a project that will combine the outdoor beauty of the region, its historical significance, and a sense of adventure. Geocaching is a global outdoor activity where participants look for hidden containers called caches, which can be found at specific locations available online. They often involve hiking or some other sort of adventuring to reach. In partnership with the statewide organization Geocache Alaska, KMTA is in the process of installing a geo trail through its corridor. Emily Emily Stewart with Geocache Alaska says a geo trail is a collection of caches in a common area that follow a theme. If participants find a certain number of the caches, they can receive a prize. Stewart says there are more than 8,000 caches in Alaska, with the greatest concentration in South Central. She says geotourism, or traveling specifically to search out geocaches, is on the rise and is particularly popular in Canada and Germany, some of Alaska's biggest visitors. The KMTA trail will contain 23 caches, 22 physical ones, and one special site called an earth cache. The sites follow the trail of KMTA's field trip guide, a pre-existing map of historical and ecological stops along the KMTA corridor with sites in Girdwood, Cooper Landing, Hope, Moose Pass, and Seward. When when participants find 20 of the 23 caches, they can redeem their success for a commemorative coin. If they find all 23, they'll receive a special Geocache Alaska souvenir. The 23rd non-physical cache is in Turnagain Pass and asks participants to observe their physical surroundings. There is also a code word hidden on a sign at the site for people to find. The trail will be maintained by a team of 10 volunteers who placed the caches originally and will check in on them periodically. Stewart says the team has worked hard to make sure the caches are around for a long time, which included placing passcode locks on some of them. Stewart has been involved in geocaching for 12 years and says, for her, it's all about the joy of being taken to unexpected places. She says other than tourists, the geotrail is also designed for Anchorage residents who want an excuse to do more exploring on the Kenai Peninsula. The KMTA geotrail will go live on June 3rd, and there will be a corresponding kickoff event in Girdwood, on that day. Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK.